be Luke chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Past few weeks, we've been looking at the details of this birth narrative. A narrative that is easy to read through quickly, to celebrate. We hear it all the time, every year, during Christmas, during Advent. It is a story that is repeated over and over again. And, and familiarity you know, can not only breed contempt, but it can also breed complacency. We can just become complacent with the story. So we've decided to look at the details, to, to dive down into the intricacies of this birth narrative and see what it would teach us regarding the Lord himself. We began by looking at the historical context of Christ's birth, demonstrating the reality of how God is sovereign over all history. Luke begins with the global uh, context goes out to the world, shows us Caesar Augustus making a decree, and how God uses the decrees of men to bring forth his eternal decree of redemption for his people. Then he brings it to the local context, taking us to the little town of Bethlehem. And we saw that in verses 4 and 5, and we saw how the, that little town of Bethlehem is actually filled with big significance. Not because of anything intrinsic about itself, but because of what it demonstrates to us about the nature of who that child would be. That he would not only be the eternal ruler of all the nations, that he would not only be the bread of life, but that he would be the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. Today we get to the manner of Christ's birth. As we look to this lowly manner, profound manner, in which Christ is born. So let's look at it together, verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 2. Luke writes, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have probably heard these verses hundreds if not thousands of times in your life as a Christian. And I don't ever want you to get to a place where these words do not blow the socks off of your feet. That God would take upon flesh and enter into creation as a helpless babe. This is remarkable. The voice that thundered to Moses on the mount now rang out with the cry of an infant. is remarkable and it causes many to stumble and it should it's mind-blowing nine months had passed since mary had received her announcement that she would give birth to the messiah the son of god and you can imagine upon hearing of this decree that they're going to have to get up leave their home in nazareth and travel 80 miles to Bethlehem on a donkey wasn't the best, wasn't the most exciting news for Mary. A very pregnant woman thinking, yay, I just came back from down. There was in Hebron with Elizabeth, came home. Now I got to travel all the way back 
This baby's going to come any day. What if he comes and we're on the middle of the road? It's not safe. But as Joseph would remind her, we don't have a choice. And perhaps Joseph or Mary, knowing the scriptures, would know that Bethlehem indeed would be the birthplace. So maybe they saw this. This was God's hand to get them there. Nevertheless, it would be a journey. We go from the global context, the local context, Bethlehem. And now Luke gives us this very personal picture of a man and a woman having no place for them in an inn, having to find room in a stable to bring forth the God of all creation as a helpless babe. This is remarkable. And I hope that as we get ready to enter into the Advent time, that you will never, ever cease to lose the excitement and the wonder that comes with Christmas. And that your children would see that from you. Not from tinsel and wrappings and candy canes. Those are all wonderful. I love Christmas. But that they would see that the heart behind it all is the reality that Christ, the Lord, the God of creation came to live amongst his people and to die for them. The Lord of creation, the Lord of glory took upon the body of a helpless babe. The God of eternity stepped into the time and space he created. That little life came out into the arms of a young man and a young woman scared to death, I can imagine. They would be given the task of raising their Savior. I can remember as a young dad being scared to death when I held Colt for the first time. And I knew he wasn't going to be my Savior. It was remarkable. And the, the weight of the task ahead of me seemed unbearable in a way. I can imagine what that young couple felt. With the weight before them as they held this little babe in the middle of the open, out in the open, with animals lying around them. Is this what we will have to deal with? Luke gives us some fascinating details in this story. He says that the time came for her to give birth. This was the fullness of time. All of history is centered on this moment. Our entire time system is framed on this moment. The fullness of time. Everything leading up to it, one of hope. Everything leading from it, one of, of rejoicing and celebration that he came and he did what he came to do. The fullness of time. The time had come. 
We don't know exactly how long they were in Bethlehem. We don't know if for the last 20 miles, the last day she had been going through labor pains. We don't know. We don't don't know how long they were there. It seems like it was pretty rushed. They get there. They're looking for an end to stay in. There is no room for them. They have to go to just any place to get out from the elements. And they find a stable. We are told that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now there's a few reasons why that is significant. The last or the least of the reasons why it's significant is because Mary did have other children. Mary and Joseph had real children. Jesus had half brothers and sisters. Two of them would go on to write books of the Bible. This, is, uh, this goes against the teaching in, in some forms of Christianity, which teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had any other children but Christ. And we know that that isn't the case. We see this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 and 56. Uh, people are looking at Jesus and they say, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So, so we see from Scripture that clearly Mary had multiple children with Joseph after Christ, but he was her firstborn. But beyond that reason, which is a minor reason, there are two other major reasons why that's important. You see, in Jewish culture, being the firstborn meant two things. First, it meant that God had a special claim over you. In Exodus chapter 13, we read in there that every child who is the first to come forth from the womb of his mother, God has special claim over. It's why we, it's also his concept of the first fruits offering and everything else. That which comes first, God has claim over. So there was a God had a special claim over Christ, and it was because it was his son. And not only that, but he was his anointed one. Secondly, being the firstborn meant that you had the right to the inheritance. You had the right to the inheritance. It was called the progenitor or or the right to inheritance. That was based on a law given in Deuteronomy 21. Now, frankly, Joseph didn't have a lot to leave him. Mary was not very well off. We see this throughout there. We know that they were both in poverty. The reason why is when they will come to the temple to offer sacrifices, they offer two turtle doves. The reason that shows us that they didn't have a lot of wealth. That was actually the lowest thing that you could buy, the the cheapest animal that you could buy in order to offer sacrifices. And so they didn't have anything. They were a, a poor, impoverished couple. Yet, what they did have, through that little detail about the fact that Joseph was of the line of David, and we know Mary is also, is that they did have the right to the throne of Israel. Now, it had been a while since a king had set over Israel, at least one that was a legitimate one from the line of David. The Hasmoneans had set upon there, and you have the Herods and things like that. But uh, Herod was an Idumean. He he was not a full-blooded ethnic Jew who came from the line of David. He was a vassal king. And so it had been a while since the Davidic king had set up on a throne, over 400 years at this point. And nevertheless, we see that through Joseph and through Mary, they have a line which 
traces them back to David and thus gives their firstborn child a, a divine right to the throne of Israel. A line to David. He would be a son of David, just as the Lord had promised David. One of his sons would sit upon the throne forever. And what's fascinating is because both Mary and Joseph come from the line of David, it establishes two things for Christ. Through Joseph, it gives Christ a legal right to the throne of Israel. And through Mary, it gives him a blood right to the throne of Israel. And both Matthew and Luke trace using those two different genealogies. So when you read the genealogy of Matthew and Luke, you'll see some slight differences. And the reason why is because Matthew traces Jesus' legal lineage through David, through Joseph, and Luke traces his blood lineage through Mary. And so that's why you see those distinct small differences between the genealogies. This would be the king of Israel, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet this baby who was God incarnate, the word of God made flesh, the eternal son of God himself, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the bread of life, the lamb of God. He would not be born in a palace. He would not be born protected by guards. He was not born and laid in a golden crib wrapped in purple sash. As he should have been. No, the God-man would not even find room in a common inn for travelers. The first place the Lord of glory in taking upon flesh would open his eyes in the world would be in a stable made for beast of burden. Donkeys and mules and ox. And the first place that little body would be laid was in a feeding trough for animals. That's what a manger was. It's a feeding trough. Surely, Joseph did everything he could to try and clean it up and, and lay fresh hay in it. But it didn't change the fact that the Lord of glory would lay in the place where slop was fed to animals. These ends here are not what we often think of. You know, we think of travel lodges and everything else and, and Marriott. They didn't have any of those back then. And originally, you know, when you would come into these areas, you would stay with a relative, you would stay with someone you know. Hospitality was a big thing in the ancient Near East. But with Roman oppression and things like that, uh, really many began to see that as, well, we don't know who's all traveling here and things like that. So these individuals would begin to build these large buildings, often in the center of towns. And, and they were known as caravanserais. It's where a place where caravans and individuals in it could come and stay. And usually they were free, or at the most, a, a very small price would be charged. And it was basically first come, first serve. Once you get here, there's room available, you can stay. If not, you can't. 
And out in the courtyard of these caravanserais were these small kind of lean-to stables often. If not a lean-to, often maybe a cave or something small that was an area, a den that was there in which travelers could leave their animals to sleep and to feed over the night. And we see that as they arrived there, there was no room for them. Joseph likely panicking. That's what young dads do. Young fathers are freaking out. His wife's in labor. He sees a, 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 a small area there. And he goes, at least this is a place. And he goes over to this inn, this stable. And there the king of glory was born. We often get flustered over the whines and cries of, of babes as if that inconveniences the Lord who was born in the midst of, of animals. What a remarkable reality. And Luke, of all the New Testament writers, is the only one who gives us that word manger. He gives us that detail that the Lord of glory was laid in this feeding trough. And as you think about this, it has to blow your mind that I was born in better conditions than the one who made me. That my whole life has been marked by better conditions than the one who formed and fashioned me. Who spoke creation into existence. Why? We know this is not because God was limited. We made that clear through these other details. And you've even got to imagine that Mary and Joseph are going, couldn't have provided a better situation than this for his own son? Man, surely there would have been at least one room left over. This is what we're left with. Why would it be in a stable, in a manger? Why not a palace? Why not even a common inn for the king of kings? Beloved, if there is one grand truth that lies behind the birth of Jesus, it's that God's ways are not our ways. Everything about him is a reality that God's ways are not our ways. And that everything he does has a purpose which serves to bring him glory and to bring salvation and to bring blessing to his people. And so just as we look at the significance of Bethlehem last week, I want us to look at the significance of of this peculiar and lowly manner in which our Savior was born. Because it tells us so much about Him, as all of these details have done. The main point of this message is that the lowly manner of Jesus' birth demonstrates His incredible humility, foreshadows His earthly sorrows, reveals His redemptive power, and invites all to come and adore him. So let's take those one by one. First, it demonstrates his incredible humility. One of the greatest passages in the Bible 
on the humility of Christ in his incarnation, his coming and taking upon flesh, is found in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love that passage. Because it says that Christ, in all of his glory, who is God, emptied himself. How did he empty himself? Not by leaving his glory, leaving his divinity, his deity back in heaven. But no, he emptied himself by taking on something. He didn't change. His divine nature always stayed the same. He emptied himself by now limiting that nature in the fullness of flesh by taking on the form of a servant. By which those natures would never be mixed but by which he would seek to to lean on his human nature so that he could be our high priest, able to sympathize with us in all of our weakness, the writer of Hebrews says. He left glory, literally, to come to the slums. To To leave the throne of heaven in the presence of angels, to be born in the muck and mire of a stable with animals. This is what we call the condescension of Christ. Literally, His infinite humility that He stooped down to the lowest of lows for the sake of redeeming His people. My friends, Jesus is God the Son who for all eternity has existed in perfect harmony with the triune Godhead. He is the agent by which all things were created. He is the eternal Logos, the Word of God, which all things were made by and nothing was made apart from Him. John chapter 1. Colossians says that in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells within His body. The writer of Hebrews says he is the exact image, a representation of God in flesh. Everything about him, the fullness of God. And yet God veiled himself in flesh. And not just as a great, powerful ruler king like the demigods that you get in Greek mythology. But as a helpless babe, totally and utterly dependent upon Mary and Joseph. Totally dependent on them. He was birthed the same way you and I were. Through absolutely natural means. There was nothing spectacular. Nothing like the early Gnostics taught where he just like beamed out of Mary. No. It was a normal, regular birth. He would wean upon his mother just as we did. And need her care and her love. He would need that nervous stepfather to not only love his mother, but to love him and to teach him and train him. The God of creation did that. 
And that's a, a mere fraction of the humility that this Savior would undertake. Right? The one who created all things would need to be fed at the chest of a poor young woman. The one who fashioned the universe would be raised as a carpenter's son who made tables and chairs. He was born in a stable. But friends, we have these nice nativity scenes that we set in our house. And they're beautiful and they're lovely and I think you should have them. I think they're great. But they are often way too romanticized. (laughs) This is filthy. I can assure you, think about the cleanest public restrooms you've been in, you know? This was public use here. People trying to rush and get in to the inn. They're leaving their animals. Likely they're not cleaning up their stuff. I mean, this, this was filthy. I can imagine Joseph scrambling around, just look, trying to find a piece of, of clean hay and a, a, a clean area to lay his wife giving birth. I'm doing everything he can to scrub out the trough. This is what our God came to be born into. This is infinite humility. This is what our God said, this is not beneath me to save my people. The first board, the first bed for the Son of God was not a royal cradle. It was a common corn crib meant to hold scraps to be eaten. And Jesus made it clear in Luke chapter 9, 58, what this always would mean. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Nothing, therefore, could be more fitting than that that in his season of humiliation, when he laid aside all his glory and took upon himself the form of a servant and condescended to the lowest estate possible, he would be laid in a feeding trough. Yet Philippians tells us that the manger was merely a point of what it was always going to be about. Because Paul said in Philippians 2 that the the fullness of his humility was seen not in his birth in a manger, but in his death on a cross. And like we talked about last week, what that stable and that picture, that literal humility of being in the muck and mire was a reality that even in his birth, Christ's life was lived in the shadow of Calvary. He was rich and yet for our sake he became poor. So that by his poverty we could become rich. And my friends, if the God of creation can stoop this low to save sinners, I don't want to ever hear us ever complain about a ministry being too low. For us. Or people being beneath our efforts for them. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as others or any situation being too low for, our, for us to go after them. Because our king came after us. And he went to the lowest of lows to do so. Let that mind which was in Christ be in each and every one of us. That mind of incredible humility. He condescended to the guttermost 
to save us to the uttermost. His whole life would be a place where he had nothing. He was born in a borrowed stable. He ate the last supper in a borrowed room. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. What a Savior. Secondly, the manner of his birth foreshadows his earthly sorrows. This is a continuation of the first. The prophet Isaiah prophesied regarding the, the servant to come, the Messiah to come. And Isaiah gives us something that shocked everyone. Because everyone expected the royal Davidic king to come in power and glory and might. But then Isaiah gets a detail from God that shocks everything. Because this Messiah is going to be a suffering Messiah. Which is why many rabbis began to teach there were going to be multiple messiahs. How can he be a royal king and a suffering servant? But Christ is indeed both. Isaiah prophesied, for he grew up, Isaiah 53, 2-3, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There was a reason why time after time in the gospel accounts, you see people coming up to the disciples saying, hey, which one of you are Jesus? Where's Jesus? He didn't walk around with a glow. He looked like any Middle Eastern man. There's no form or, or majesty about his body. He wasn't like, whoa, that dude's super attractive. Like, it, was, it just wasn't. He's probably a really strong, regular looking Middle Eastern man. And no, I, I believe he was strong. I, 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 listen, my grandfather was a carpenter. And I tell this story a lot of times because it radically changed the way I think about Jesus. But my grandfather's hands were huge. And his forearms were massive. And he was kind of in that transition where power tools became a big thing. There were no power tools when Jesus was walking on the earth. I'm sure... He was a strong man, just like those fishermen that he walked with. But you couldn't have told him apart. That's oftentimes why I, I struggle with some of the pictures that are depicted of Jesus. Not because I, I think there's anything inherently wrong with that, for Christ himself translated himself for man to behold. But because they make him far too beautiful. And they make him look way too much like me. And I don't look like a Middle Eastern man. He wasn't blonde-haired and blue-eyed. We wouldn't have been able to tell him apart. Everything about him would have been obscure and just a normal, regular, everyday Joe. And this stable was an ultimate picture of what his whole life would be. Lowly and poor. He would remain in almost complete obscurity for 30 years. We, we get one small window into when he was 12 in Luke's account. That's it. 
Other than that, total obscurity for 30 years until he burst back on the scene to begin his full ministry. The fact there was no room for him in the end would not be the last time that Christ would be rejected and be given no room by men. He was run out of his own hometown, rejected by his own brothers and sisters, at least before his resurrection. And he was condemned to death with shouts of crucifying by his own kinsmen. It wasn't Romans that shouted crucify. It was his own Jewish brothers and sisters. He was born with no spoon at all, much less a golden spoon. He spent his life in poverty. Pain, poverty, obscurity, rejection. This was the lot that Christ had had and it began with his very birth. Abraham was a man of great wealth. Joseph, even through suffering, still ended up in Pharaoh's court. Moses spent most of his life where? Pharaoh's court. David and Solomon experienced the glories of kingship. Solomon knew wealth unimaginable. But not the king of kings. Not in his first coming. He had no wealth. And the only time he ever spent in an emperor's court was to hear his death sentence pronounced. The inn had no room for him. His hometown had no room for him. The religious leaders of the day had no room for him. Herod had no room for him. And Pilate had no room for him. He was unwanted. He was an outcast. He was a man of sorrows. So all of you who feel rejected, insignificant, obscure, unwanted, despised, filled with sorrow, marginalized by society, hear me today. The message of the manger declares to you that the God of creation knows exactly how you feel. In your lowest places, in your most sorrowful moments, in your deepest of suffering, you can go to Christ and receive, I know. Only Christ can offer that. There's no other God that can offer that. Only Christ can. Only Christ knows the sorrows of life. This is why there's no problem of evil. You know, you always get the problem, if God's so good, then why is there suffering? My friend, only the God of the Bible, He is the only God who looked at the problem of suffering and in order to become the answer for it, took on suffering Himself. He literally took on evil Himself in order to become the antidote for it. There's no other God who can boast that. Which is why every other systematic religion does have a problem with evil. But not the God of the Bible. Because he was crushed by evil in order to become the answer for it. The birth of Jesus shows us that we have a God who not only knows our sufferings, but chose to take them upon himself. Think about that. Jesus chose this. He was not a victim of his circumstances. This was what he willful and volitionally chose to do in covenant with his father. I will take upon this for my people. 
What manner of love is that? Thirdly, the manner of His birth reveals His redemptive power. You know, we would not talk about for one second a manger today if, it, if, if there were not for one reason. Christ took up residence there. We would have nothing to talk about anything about a manger or a stable. None of you would have cradles with hay in your house during this time of year if Christ didn't come and take up residence there. It would just be another stable, dirty, stinky, smelly stable. Like, no one is going to a pig farm, watching them eat slop, and you go, I think that'd be a great decoration for the house. (laughs) An animal trough became a king's bed and the rest place of God only because Christ dwelled there. For one night, an animal trough, a manger, became the throne of God. And the moment he left, guess what? It went right back to being a feeding trough. I'm sure the people in the end didn't go, I think we should keep this thing. No. They probably wonder why it was cleaned up. Who put hay in this trough? And they filled it up with all the slops left from the people in the end. My friends, only Jesus could redeem a filthy trough into being a symbol of hope and glory. He did it in his birth. And he also did it in his death. He took the greatest tool of death in the ancient world. That's an execution device. People wear it around their necks. We hang it up in our church. No one's walking around with a guillotine on their neck. He took the greatest tool in the ancient world for death, the greatest picture of death, and made it a picture of life. The Apostle Paul would later say, Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus by the which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast in the cross? You've got to understand how shocking that would be. Like you say, I boast in the electric chair. How can you boast in a tool for execution? And a tool for death. It's because Christ came and took the darkest instrument for death and made it the greatest picture of life. And that's exactly what he did with this smelly, stinky, sloppy trough and made it a cradle for a king. He made an object of filth into an object of glory. Why? Because he was there. Whatever Christ touches, He redeems. Beloved, though that trough was indeed filthy, it was spotless compared to our sinful souls. The Bible says that even our best acts of righteousness are filthy rags to God. Even when we think we're doing our best, God, that's filthy rags to Him. Our hearts are desperately wicked, the scriptures say. And so here's the truth of it. The most shocking part of the Christmas story 
is not that Christ would lie in a manger, but that he would live among sinners. That's the most shocking part. That he would come and live among them and then redeem them is shocking to me. Hear me out. What forever cemented the manger and the stable as the central picture of the Christmas story was only because Christ took residence there. That's the reason we put up nativity scenes. It's because Christ took residence there. What brought the manger glory? What gave that stable meaning? What established its significance was one thing and one thing alone. Jesus was there. And beloved, that same goes for us today. Without Christ, we're nothing but lifeless sinners covered in the muck and mire of wickedness, engulfed in the stench of death. And whether it is the filth of the sinner, the paralysis of the lame, the issue of blood for the woman, the disease of the leopard, there is nothing that this king does not purify and be redeemed by his touch. Without him, we are left without hope, without strength, without life. Without him, there is no purpose and meaning. Without him, we would be just like feeding troughs. Nothing but material put together to do nothing but fill a base purpose until eventually our time runs out. That's all we would be. In a world without Christ, in a world without God, we are cosmic accidents. Bags of molecules built for nothing but a base accidental purpose awaiting an eternity of nothing. That's it. But with Christ and the truth of God's word, with Him, there is meaning. Beloved, if you know Christ and He has come and taken residence within your soul, what was covered in filth and muck and grime, He has made it into a throne of God. By imputing to us his righteousness and taking his residence within us. You who were once nothing, unable to do anything but fulfill base purposes. If you have come to know Christ, he has taken residence in you. And you have now become a throne of the king. An object of glory. I don't care how dark and damnable your past is today. How filthy, dirty, rotten your past is. Know this, you're in good company. You're in very good company. But hear me out. In Christ you can be completely redeemed and made brand new. The Savior purifies and makes glorious everything He touches. So repent and trust in Him and He will come and dwell in you and fill you with all meaning and value and purpose. But more than anything, He will fill you with life eternal. And that brings us to our final thing. The lowly manner of Christ's birth invites all to come and adore Him. Christ was not laid in a building with doors. This was a, a, a manger, a lean-to, maybe even a cave that would have been available that's got complete access to the world. 
There's a reason those shepherds just pop up in there. It's completely open. There's no doors. Nothing barring any way to get to this babe in the manger. My friends, we might tremble to approach a throne or a king on a war horse. But we cannot fear a helpless babe in a manger. Though he was and is God, there has never been a more approachable person than Christ in his first advent. There were no rough guards stationed outside to push poor petitioners away. No rough henchmen to keep off poor widows or the man who clamored that his son might be made whole. No, my friends, the hem of his garment was always trailing where sick folk might reach it and be made whole. He himself always had a hand ready to touch the diseased, an ear to catch the faintest accents of misery, a soul going forth everywhere in rays of mercy, a readiness to go sit upon any sinner who might receive him. Even when the disciples sought to keep others away from him, namely those kids, Jesus says, you bid them to come unto me. You let them come to me. Even as an infant, by being laid in a manger, Jesus was set forth as the sinner's friend. Born in the lowest of place and able to have complete access to him. In the midst of that moment. Later in life. He would offer these words. To everyone who hears. These words are for everyone. Who has ears to hear. Matthew 11. 28-30. Come to me. All you. Who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Should we be shocked that he would be born in a lowly place? So come to him. All you that are weary and heavy laden. Come to him. All you that are broken in spirit. All you who are tormented in soul. Come to Him, all you who despise yourselves and are despised by others. Come to Him, all you who are despairing and downtrodden. Come to Him, all you who are battling with sin and addiction. Come to Him, all you who are spiritually burdened and famished. Come to Him, all you who are lonely and rejected. Come to Him, all of you who are suffering invisible wounds. Wounds that maybe no one else sees. Christ does. Come to Him. In the manger there He lies. Unguarded from your touch and unshielded from your gaze. Bow the knee. Kiss the Son of God. Confess Him as your Savior. For He put Himself into that manger that you might approach Him. Everything about His life was one of approach. He did not triumphantly ride into Israel on His last week on a war horse. He did so on a donkey. That you might approach Him. That you might not fear Him. That you might reach out and hold Him. 
The throne of Solomon might awe you, but the manger of the son of David, Jesus Christ, invites you. Whether you be the wisest of men or the poorest of shepherds and everyone in between, the babe of Bethlehem bids you to come and behold him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God. Beloved, is it not amazing that Christ would be born in the only place left for sojourners traveling to Bethlehem? He was born in the only place left for weary travelers. And my friend, the gospel is preached to every creature. It shuts no one off who puts their trust in Jesus. Our Lord Christ was born in the stable of the inn to let every outcast, every weary traveler of life to know that in Him there's always room to be found. You may find no room in the world, but you will find room in Christ. There is more mercy in Him than there ever is sin in us. No weary traveler, you may have not found any room in this world. There is room in Christ for you. There are no class exclusions from coming to Christ. There is no caste system here. No forms of etiquette are required for entering a stable. No need to clean yourself up first. If you desire to come to Christ, you may come to Him just as you are. And you may come now, knowing that once you behold that King, you will never be the same again. Jesus is free to you, and He will welcome you with gladness. If God is pressing on your heart by His grace this morning, then I say to you, come. Know that Jesus is able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto Him by faith. Cast yourself upon that promise and let us bow around the manger and worship our eternal King. I want to just close with this. With this. The primary reason that Jesus was born in this lowly manner is because there was no place for Him. And beloved, just as it was 2,000 years ago in that end, the world has had no place for Him ever since. We've been told that politics has no place for Him. We've been told that education has no place for him. Science has no place for him. Law has no place for him. Philosophy has no place for him. Public discourse has no place for him. The workplace has no place for him. And why should we be shocked? This is the response of the world. We should be shocked by that. We shouldn't be shocked when the world says there's no place for Jesus here. Why would they want anyone there who would rule over them and say that the way you are living is wrong? The problem with the world is not hatred of the light primarily, but love of the darkness. And that's the reason why the world finds no place for him. But what bothers me, more importantly, is not when the world has no room for him, but when those who confess themselves as followers of Christ have little to no room for him either. What saddens me is when the lack of vacancy characterizes our own life. Christ gets very little of who we are. No time for Christ, no vacancy for Christ. And we have left him 
the stables of Sunday morning. And we're okay with him staying there. My friends, I pray that that Lord who came in infinite humility to live a life of earthly sorrow, to redeem everything he touches and invites all to come in him, that that king, the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ, might have the central room in your life and not be left to the peripheries. What needs to go in order for you to make more room for Christ in your life? My friend, our holidays and our festivities are full of often everything but Jesus. How much room will Jesus get in our hearts on Thursday? Or will our God be our bellies? As Paul says in Philippians 3. No, my friends, not only is Christ the reason for the season, He's literally the author of the seasons. There would be no seasons apart from Him. So I pray that day by day you will let Christ be the central character and actor and focus of your life. That He would fill all of your life with His power and His glory. How can you not when you reflect on everything He came to be and endure for us so that we might have eternal life through Him? In incredible humility, He came as a helpless babe to endure immense sorrow, even unto death on a cross, so that he could redeem sinners like you and me and invite us all to, part- to partake of his glories forever. My friend, everything you ever need will be found in Christ alone. So make sure he has the central room in your life forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you so much for what he did for us. I thank you so much for the fact that he stands ever ready to receive all who come to him by faith. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's someone here who has yet to come to him, that they will freely and fully, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, cast themselves before the babe of Bethlehem, cast themselves before the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for all of us who are here, who in the midst of the busyness of life have have such an easy tendency. And Lord, I am guilty. I I put myself first at that. To to, to let Christ drift to the stables, the peripheries of our life. Lord, I, I pray that you would just make him central. That once again, you would make him central to our focus, central to our week, central to our day. That day after day, Christ is at the forefront. Christ is at the, 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 the outset of our focus, Lord. That everything about our day is filtered through the glories of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the love of Christ, the message of Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we start thinking of all of the many ways that we are to be thankful this week, that at the very beginning, we would thank you with this, that Jesus came to die for sinners like us. We thank you for the babe of Bethlehem. We thank you for our suffering servant. We thank you for our king of kings. We thank you for our Lord. We thank you for our redeemer, our savior, our friend. 
Jesus. Oh God, make Him central to our life. And let us bear His message to the world. Come and adore Him, the King of glory, and receive the salvation that's found in Christ alone. Lord, we thank You and we praise You. May we never forget the glories we have in the Christmas message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.